I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we stop using technology to optimize human beings for the market and start optimizing technology for the human future. And the future of every species, for that matter. It's not too late to find the others. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, challenging Amazon and the cloud industrial complex, activists Jacinta Gonzalez and Amy Herzog. All of these technologies and gadgets are just giving more information to an agency that has no regard for due process. Amazon's very concerned about its corporate image and tries very hard to keep their cloud service and law enforcement contracts out of the public eye. Gonzalez and Herzog will be showing us why the people of the borough of Queens, New York, may not want to welcome Amazon's HQ2 with open arms, and what they and we can still do to liberate ourselves from algorithmic control. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. You're on Team Human. I'm still on the road with the Team Human manifesto with plenty of great events left to go in London, Portland, LA, Miami. You can find out about everything at teamhuman.fm. Of particular interest are two Team Human Live events, one at Bunk Bar in Portland on February 22nd with Blade Spence and Jennifer Rausch, and just announced I'll be back at WNYC Green Space with Roger McNamee, the author of Zooked, Waiting Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, written by one of Mark Zuckerberg's first investors and mentors, who now thinks Facebook is the number one threat to humanity. It's going to be a crazy one. That's at WNYC Green Space on March 4th. Tickets to that and more through teamhuman.fm. Those of us here in New York just enjoyed a great evening at the Green Space with Naomi Klein. We're editing that episode right now to post next week. And when Naomi got onto the topic of climate change, she actually, she said she felt the need to apologize, perhaps jokingly, for having brought everyone down. And it got me wondering, are we taking the wrong approach to communicating about climate change? I get that the situation is dire, really dire. It goes way beyond the fact that every year it's the hottest year on record, that sea levels are rising, drought is forcing millions into refugee status, the Great Barrier Reef is almost dead, the oceans are 26% more acidic than pre-industrial levels, our topsoil will be gone in less than 60 years, and we're already at least 1.5 degrees Celsius warming toward our 2-degree predicted catastrophe. I get that. And by any rational analysis, civilization as we know it is on the brink of true disaster. And 
in spite of their outward messaging, even climate-denying, anti-scientific, messianic nations like the United States are quietly preparing for the coming storm. No, they're not looking at how to mitigate climate change, but how to prepare for its inevitability. We are building walls, not to keep out today's immigrants, but to block out tomorrow's climate refugees. We're being trained by our president and other leaders to see other people from other nations as somehow less than human. And this will make it easier to watch as flooding and other climate catastrophes wipe out millions. At least it's them, not us, we'll be able to tell ourselves. And this sort of alienation verging on sociopathy takes time to develop. But these are the sorts of things people do when they feel powerless to affect any change. They see the future as fixed, as something to predict and prepare for, but as utterly impervious to their intervention. It's the posture toward the future assumed by most corporations. They hire futurists and scenario planners to tell them what's most likely to happen 10, 20, 50 years from now so that they can invest in whatever's going to be valuable in that environment. Back in the 80s, the futurists started talking about the coming water crisis, and that's what turned water into a private commodity, accelerating and worsening the very crisis that was being predicted. Likewise, any futurist worth his coverage in Wired magazine is telling their corporate clients about the coming global climate crisis in stirring detail, which regions will be underwater, how temperatures are likely to affect social unrest and politics and violence levels, how and where the populations of Africa or Southeast Asia are going to migrate, and so on. So we've won the communications battle in the sense that the rich and powerful now accept the reality of climate change and are actively betting on it happening. They believe us, but we're losing the war in that they don't believe the crisis can be averted. As speculators, they're more committed to betting on the future that's most likely to happen rather than investing in creating the future they'd like to see happen. In the finance world, that's called emotional investing, where you invest in what you want to see happen rather than what you know is going to happen. And that attitude, that's self-perpetuating. The more we invest in the inevitability of climate disaster, the more devastating a future we're creating for ourselves. If we're going to get business on our side, after which government is sure to follow, we have to convince them that the most likely future scenario is one where the whole world tries to get in on the bet that we can avert climate change, or at least we can mitigate its effects, slow it down, build more resilience. We have to show that the world is on board and ready to do and pay for what's necessary to keep the planet livable for the vast majority of species. As a thinker who is often mistaken for a futurist, I mustn't stand in front of people and tell them how many millions or billions of people may die, how mass migrations will threaten the sanctity of nation states, or how we're on the brink of dead oceans, because then my audience will start betting on that outcome. After all, an authority figure is telling them what will happen. No, the people who needed to hear the alarm bells have heard them. Those who couldn't respond to the warnings with anything but self-interested bets on shotguns and iodine tablets and water stocks and land in New Zealand, they need to hear a different message. They need to hear that climate change is about to be defeated. If they don't get in on climate remediation now on the ground floor, they'll miss the opportunity. This is the chance to invest in organic agriculture, to sell short on Monsanto and Big Agra. This is the time to go all in on solar and wind and geothermal. And once they do, once the big money is really in, just watch as Wall Street starts lobbying for the Green New Deal proposed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others. Net zero greenhouse emissions is not a pipe dream, but a plausible, positive, attainable goal. Let's start talking about our collective sustainable future in ways that make people bet on it. You're on Team Human. Find the others. 
I'm Alex Rivetta. I'm on Team Human. I'm Aaron Maté, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Ben Tarnoff, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Eleanor Seita, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Moira Weigel, and I'm on Team Cyborg Human. This is Genesis Briar Piorich, one half of Briar Piorich, and we're glad to say we are part of this beautiful organism, the humane species, otherwise known as Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guests today are immigrant activists Jacinta Gonzalez and Amy Herzog. So Queens, New York, turned out to be the lucky winner of Amazon's year-long search for places to put its new headquarters. And while our mayor and governor have offered Jeff Bezos naming rights on their children for the privilege of becoming one of Amazon's new homes... The people of Queens have slightly different feelings about all this. Take a listen to this recent protest. P-T-F-O! Amazon is P-T-F-O! Amazon is Having witnessed what Google did to real estate prices and basic livability in San Francisco, they understand that this may not end up well for the borough. And beyond that, Amazon's surveillance services harken back to dangerous eras of computer-aided population culling, making those currently targeted by ICE and other government agencies particularly vulnerable to any spread of this industry into their neighborhoods. Well, rising to the challenge of parsing and publicizing these issues are two real-world activists, Jacinta Gonzalez, immigrant rights activist with Mi Gente, and Professor Amy Herzog, media historian and social justice activist. I'm so glad to have you both. Where I want to start the, this conversation is uh, my listeners at Team Human kind of already know now is the sort of the throwing rocks at the Google bus argument. And that's that these uh, uh, promising young technology startups uh, grow up and end up having the reverse effect on the people and places where they operate than one might expect. So you would think that the you know kids starting a, a an internet company in their dorm room at Stanford, uh, you know, this sort of homegrown Bay Area company would end up bringing uh, prosperity to the people and places where they're operating. But instead, they uh, make the real estate unaffordable. They put uh, local people out of business and uh, everybody has to leave <laughs> or or be poor. And uh, uh, we understand some of how that happens, just that they hire people from other places who come in and make $200,000 a year. So rents go up and they really just want to use uh, the Mission District or maybe as it will turn out, Long Island City as the almost Disney-like backdrop for them to have cool lives while they go and work at a at a company that really is not at all integrated to the to the neighborhood where they work and has a a very extractive impact on everybody. So when we look at Amazon moving to Long Island City, the obvious protest is that is that oh they're going to come here and now no one's going to be able to live in Long Island City anymore. Our, you know, public bus stops are going to be used for these private double-decker air-conditioned Wi-Fi, you know, almost hotels for these people to commute. Our, our subways will be unusable and, uh, and life will get worse. That, I guess, is our, our uh, initial thinking on Amazon moving around the corner from, from Queens College, where, where Amy and I both work. But you, I guess you to see that and you also see a kind of a, a bigger problem at play here, right? Absolutely. And I guess in the context of the local opposition and after having read your fantastic report, Yusinta, I was kind of mobilized around the idea that no one is talking about this much more insidious work that Amazon is doing that very few people seem to be talking about or they'll in an offhand way say, oh, I heard Amazon is making facial recognition technology for ICE, but not getting um, how kind of deep these roots are and how much 
this is a part of Amazon's kind of profit model um, are these government contracts. I mean, I think what what is the the bigger implication is just as you think about their business model and you're thinking about how they're just trying to to grow for growth's sake and trying to get whatever contracts they can to kind of be able to get millions and billions of dollars. We're seeing that they're seeing government contracts as a big connection to that. And so that really means that they have to get in line with whatever the political uh, rhetoric or agenda of the administration is at that moment. And so I think particularly under the Trump administration, it's that you can clearly see how these, these businesses, how these corporations are want to align themselves with Trump, want to align themselves with this administration's agenda, simply because that means lucrative contracts. Um, and so for us, it's been kind of interesting to, one, understand how like 10% of DHS's budget at this point is technology, um, and how the conversations about the wall, the conversations about border security, they all actually imply even more lucrative contracts. Um, and so it's less about how they're implicated in it directly, but more how their participation in this political system actually helps expand the racist, xenophobic rhetoric that the that this administration is putting out. So, I mean, it would be it would be one thing if it was just the the administration using tax dollars to hire more people, uh, more agents to to do stuff. So, where where does like I guess where does Amazon's uh, technology? Uh, actually fit in to the to the uh, uh, this kind of feedback loop of uh, of surveillance and monitoring and and ultimately xenophobia and nationalism well it's it's two primary places um just as amy has has been saying i think what we've what has been public so far is one the way in which amazon is selling facial recognition technology to different agencies and it's been kind of hard to be able to pinpoint exactly where precisely because they're so secretive and not public about their contracts. There's not really a way for, for the public to know what's happening. But the second is that more and more immigration and customs enforcement, a border patrol, all of these agencies are collecting large um, files on people. They're you know tracking people's cell phones. They're tracking people's medical bills. They're tracking people's um, locations and social media activity, and they have to have a place to store them. And Amazon has found this really wonderful trick of to get these government contracts, you have to have a FedRAMP authorization. And what's and that? It's just an authorization that the government gives you to be able to to hold government data, um, mm. to kind of pass the security clearance. And so Amazon has over 200 FedRAMP authorizations, where companies like Google have 30. And so you really start to realize how much of a monopoly over the market of providing of you know providing cloud services to the government Amazon is really kind of starting to hold on to and this is only going to intensify if they are actually given this deal with the Department of Defense called the Jedi Cloud which is over 1 billion dollars. And so I think it just also fits with what we're seeing in New York where it's like the government is giving these trillion billionaires and trillionaires like actual government money and tax cuts just to be able to expand their business and what their business is is to use a nice word they're they're opportunistic so if they see america moving towards let's call it a police state um they think, oh, well, police states are going to need all sorts of cool administration and fingerprinting and biometrics and scanning and surveillance. So let's just get in those businesses. Exactly. And I think what we're seeing is that, you know, this idea of innovation, it just tracks wherever one the political interest is and where people are, are, are trying to, to go. And so instead of having technology kind of being the driving force behind the war on climate change, we see them being the, the driving force between being able to have government control and policing in, in America. And you feel that the high leverage point in this, or one of them, is protesting the companies themselves. In other words, when I think of, of, of Jeff Bezos and Amazon as this, uh, uh, by any means necessary, extract money algorithm they're not it doesn't even feel human to me it's just this this extraction algorithm that has now seized upon our our uh, growing well we're calling it police state or uh, this uh, uh, 
police industrial complex or ICE complex in America that it should be should, that we we protest our the, the civic and the government agencies that are doing the hiring rather than the you know uh, profiteers who are just following suit no well i mean i think these type of political moments where we do actually see state control intensifying where we see communities being under attack i think those are the moments where everyone has to be directly exposed and have a conversation about what's happening. I think even though the decision-making, a lot of it does happen within the government, these companies have tremendous control and could actually set ethical lines, could actually set moral lines, could take political positions on this to try to make sure that technology is used for the improvement of humanity and not for its control and continued marginalization of communities that have already historically suffered so much. But so for that reason, that's why we thought it's that it's important to both, one, expose these corporations, target them directly, um, and also really start to talk to their employees. What we understand is inside of these companies, there's also dynamics where they see the same CEOs and corporations that are, you know, not caring about communities that they're going into. They're also not caring about their employees. And a lot of the workers in these corporations don't understand always the magnitude of what they're working on and those impacts. So that, for that reason, it's important to target these companies publicly, to have public campaigns so that everyone can be reached through that conversation. Right. So exactly. In like the case of, uh, of Google, you know, the more educated the Google employees became about, you know, the company's policies in China or making a second browser, it got to the point where the, comp- where the, the employees were educated enough about the impact of what they were doing that they walked out. Even just for a day, they still were saying they were going to be unwilling to participate. And as we all know, that developers are are the the hardest thing for these companies to 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 hold on to. This is happening actually already with Amazon that there's been very public pushback from their tech workers raising ethical concerns about some of this surveillance technology and some of these contracts, open letters and sort of a hashtag movement, tech won't build it and no tech for ICE, trying to sort of raise awareness and push the higher ups at Amazon to be accountable for these technologies. Right. I mean, the trick is, I mean, and and I know I'll get a call whenever I do any kind of uh, show or commentary or a, a column about Amazon, I end up getting a call from some really nice, you know, DC-based Amazon employee libertarian public relations person. I mean, these people are smart. You know, they're not, they, they, they can sometimes talk me under the table in terms of the, the philosophy or <laughs> the economic arguments, but I know what they'll say. They'll say, well, look, you know, uh, 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 Jacinta, you, you yourself were uh, arrested at a, uh, a Trump rally in 2016. And not only did they take you to, to jail, but then they took you to like ICE because they, they <laughs> pretty much want to just see who maybe has some immigration problems that then they can uh, uh, capitalize on. Well, what Amazon would say is, well, look, right on the scene, we could have just, you know, if Amazon was in charge, we could have scanned your irises before we even arrested you and know that you were American and you wouldn't have had to go through that terrible ICE ordeal. Well, one, that, that's actually exactly the point. If they had Googled me, they would have had more information and they would have actually been able to make an accurate determination. The problem is that this technology is being used in a system that doesn't make sense and that actually is intended to violate people's fundamental rights. So what happened to me is not that uncommon. And the, the reason it's not that uncommon is because ICE detainers or ICE holds, what they use inside of the jails to, to transfer people to immigration custody aren't even based on probable cause. They have no standard of evidence. And so all of these technologies and gadgets are just giving more information to an agency that has no regard for due process, no regard for supporting pe- for defending people's fundamental rights. And so they're actually just contributing more to the problem. It's not that they're helping clarify things. It's that they're actually giving them more ammo and more to- you know, toys to play with in an era where already we have people marching the streets saying abolish ICE because people are horrified of what's happening at the border, the separation of children, the prosecution of migrants, deportations of longtime residents. And so given this political climate, it is really insane for Amazon to be even going into a neighborhood like Queens. 
that is one of the most diverse, that has so many immigrants, that where people are terrified every day about what ICE is doing in their communities. And so I think that's part of the, the contradiction, too, and the tension that people are, are pointing out. Now, when Amazon moves into a place like a Long Island City, which is, you know, and I work in Queens and Amy does, it's a it, one of the main reasons I'm working in Queens is to feel like part of the world rather than some, you know, isolated white or Ivy League enclave. I mean, this is really, it does feel like a crossroads. When, when a, a company like Amazon, I don't even know if you can say a company like Amazon because there is no other. When, when Amazon itself, which is such a, a, a symbol and, and perpetuator of uh, some, of these, uh, some of these policies, when they move in into a neighborhood like that, there's obviously that symbolic sense of, oh my gosh, here we are, we're living around this, this compound of, uh, of the, the enabler of this stuff that's really making our lives uh, horrible. But is it is it more than symbolic? Do you feel like them being there puts the 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 community at a different kind of a risk because they're in such proximity, or is it you know there or is it sort of more the the symbolic their symbolic presence? I think it's a little bit more of the symbolic presence, but I also think that Amazon's presence on the East Coast is actually meant to intensify their relationships with the government. Today, for, for y'all, because of where you're located, you're, you want to talk about the New York expansion, but what's happening in, in, in Virginia and Washington, D.C. Is, is equally menacing. I mean, why do they want to have such a big location so close to, to D.C.? is for a lot of these reasons, and part of their contracts with DHS and their contracts with the Department of Defense. And so... I think the proximity is both talking about how they're taking up more space and therefore doing more nefarious things with these tools, um, but also the significance of them coming in and saying, well, not only will you not be able to afford housing, but we'll probably track you down at your new address and, and help facilitate your deportation. Right. And their locations really do convey their sense of um, uh, of cultural, social and political power. So if they're executives and if their culture, really, uh, if you can call it that, infiltrates New York, D.C., the, the places where our decisions are made, they become part of that, uh, that decision-making class. They're not just, oh, look at the California kids are here today to talk to us. Now they're really part of the, the Wall Street business decisions. They're part of the D.C. Uh, uh, lobbying decisions. So it's sort of a different, it's a different role for the corporation. I think there's a PR component of this as well, that Amazon's very concerned about its corporate image and tries very hard to keep their cloud service and law enforcement contracts sort of out of the public eye. And there's a way in which coming to Queens becomes a way and talking about creating these pipelines with um, CUNY and other local universities that they're going to provide high paying tech jobs in the New York area. And they've done a number of supposedly sort of pro-immigrant marketing strategies. It's a way to deflect attention away from the work that they're doing and create this image of them being sort of stewards of the, of the public good at the same time that they are capitalizing on this East Coast location and the representatives and cities are kind of quick to, to pick up on this as a, a win for the city and a win for low income communities without talking about the actual work that the company is going to do here. Yeah, even I mean, we looked at the uh, the announcements from our own um, City University of New York chancellors and and. Uh, presidents and such, they're acting as if, oh, we're so strapped for money and our kids are really wanting to get jobs when they come out. Now here comes this terrific multi-trillion dollar Silicon Valley company is going to come here and become this wonderful pipeline for our talent. And they're going to come and teach us sort of how to use technology in the classroom. And maybe they'll give us all Alexas in our in our offices to, you know, call up special services, you know, and that's, it's kind of bizarre, but that it gets sold to us that way when it's actually, um, you're right, a front for, for something else. And that something else, I feel like, 
I don't know if our, our listeners quite understand how uh, Amazon might use and concatenate all of this biometric data. You know, we understand what it's like to have an advertisement follow us around on the net after we've looked on it on Amazon or their their suggestions or their algorithms. So as, you know, as consumers or even as political actors, we might feel like Amazon and other companies are using our data against us or to turn us into more extreme versions of who we are. But that's, you know, while it's not good, it's not immediately life-threatening the way the application of these same sorts of technologies to the immigrant population, you know, to how that affects people's lives. And I was hoping maybe, uh, Jacinta, you could take us through some of uh, of how this works. Because when I read your, your, your stuff or some of your interviews, it starts to sound like an Alex Rivera movie. You know, this, this is like, you know, it's like science fiction. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it does, definitely feels like a rabbit hole of terror when you start to, to investigate all of the ways that this kind of works and, and how it's kind of impacting people. Um, I mean, I think to, to start off in, in explaining how the data is being both, you know, found and stored and processed and then used against immigrants, I think it's also helpful to kind of understand what is happening right now in terms of the Trump administration's position on immigration. I think everyone's kind of been watching how they've been trying to transform um, both the non-legal and the legal immigration system. And so the way that that works is, you know, Trump in his first days of office was basically trying to expand who would be considered deportable. And so, you know, that's why he took away DACA. That's why he took away the temporary protective status. That's why he's trying to include as many possibilities um, in terms of who could be deported from the country, um, in addition to already the folks that are here undocumented. And so he's been doing that at the same time that he's been trying to build out the deportation force to be able to take these folks out. And so that's been happening through new hires, through new technologies, but also through the Department of Justice intervening in the court system to give people less of an opportunity to be able to argue their case less of an opportunity to actually have some sort of defense to be able to stay here. And so you see this like kind of expansion of who's deportable, a shrinking of the protections of the court, and this expansion of the surveillance machinery. And to be clear, this was already happening um, during the past administration, but it's just really sped up and intensified um, in the just couple of years of, of Trump's reign. And so what, what is happening is that now Immigration and Customs Enforcement has private contracts with all of these data brokers to get private sources of information. So companies like LexisNexis that you know researchers have been using forever are now, or Thomson Reuters are now, you know, having contracts with ICE to be able to provide them with all of this information. So literally, we've had stories of people um, who say like the only way that they could have used that address is because I filed my taxes. Or the only way they could have had that address is because that's where my, you know, cable bill is. Um, which you're not able to, because this is the lack of transparency, you're not able to be able to prove what it was. But people already have that deep and comfortable feeling of how are they getting my information and how are they tracking my location? Um, but then, you know, this provides a, a new problem for ICE, which is now we have all of these new types of uh, sources of data not only coming from, from police or local authorities, how do we process it? And that's where these like little companies like Palantir come in. Palantir is a company that's own, you know, was founded by money from Peter Thiel and the CIA. They together put it in a, in a pot and created this company that's able to process all of this data and kind of create a, a case management system for ICE. And it's this case management system by Palantir that is hosted on the Amazon Web Services. So this is really the, the, the worst kind of program because they just want to have one file on everyone. And part of the reason it's so terrifying is, as I was talking about the expansion of the deportability grounds, one simple accusation that you are part of a gang or that you have criminal record in your home country or that you are part of, a, a, of you know, an interfamily dispute all of those things can be put in your file and linked directly to your deportation without a day in court. And so 
even though right now the attack is particularly on immigrant communities, I think we can all be concerned about what happens where we have a data system where you're not able to challenge what's in there, but one source of information can impact your entire life. Um, you know, and that's really what's so scary about it. Right. And it becomes, I mean, when people think, oh, well, everybody does this one thing that I did too. But what they don't understand is that as you move into an increasingly repressive society, you end up in a situation of selective enforcement where, you know, that, that yes, everyone did this slightly illegal thing, but the fact that there's a record that you did it means that we can now pick that detail as the excuse to now, you know, take you out or, or arrest you or, or take certain rights away from you. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, I, I, we were, we had to reschedule this interview because of, of the case of Alejandra Pablos, one of our members who was ordered deported last week. And, you know, her great crime is a DUI. How many people in America have a DUI? And yet it is only folks that are undocumented that face the double price of not only having to serve your, you know, she already served two months in Tent City under our pile for this DUI. And now it's also going to be the basis for her deportation. We really see that there's very disparate impacts for people's actions. Right. That, that for some Americans, it comes down to understanding what is their country anymore? You know, and, and you know, certainly Trump's rhetoric doesn't doesn't help with this. And 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 arguably, uh, you know, Obama didn't do much to uh, articulate what uh what a nation is or how it works. But right now people are understanding nation as well. You're kind of in or you're out. And if you're not granted, you know, uh, documented status, then why are you here? And what does it mean to have a country if people are allowed to walk in? Well, I mean, I think it is important to understand all of these things in historical perspective. Right. Um, and Michelle Alexander said it best when she was talking about incarceration. You know, and she's really been able to, to track and kind of talk about state control, state violence um, within this racial caste system. And so we see the same thing, the same processes of laws that were created to, you know, protect slavery, to protect Jim Crow laws, then thinking about mass incarceration and the war on drugs. As we're thinking about how technology is supporting state control, we're really just reading next chapter of this book. Um, you know, whether you're talking about ankle monitors uses incarceration, or you're talking about surveillance to make sure that you can catch people on, you know, parole violations to be able to keep them locked up. It's part of the same cycle. And I think what we see on the immigration side is already the past administration was doing so much harm through this narrative of we are going to deport felons, not families. And I think a lot of folks kind of fell in line with that rhetoric saying, yes, we should protect ourselves from, mm -hmm. you know, criminal, quote unquote, criminals. And what we see is that this, this system, what it does is mass produce criminals. Everything that we're seeing at the border, what we're seeing is a ma expansion of mass prosecutions where anyone simply trying to cross the border to be, you know, to look for safety or to be reunited with family is automatically being prosecuted and sentenced to federal prison before even going into immigration proceedings. And so all of a sudden they're felons. And that kind of gives them, quote unquote, the green light to be able to be exposed to all of the surveillance. But we have to remember that everyone is, is literally just one, one rush away, brush away with, with contact with law enforcement to fall into that category. I would also add, again, there's this kind of split between the rhetoric of this kind of firm line between people who are here legally and here illegally, which becomes kind of an engine for rallying, rallying the base. And then on the other hand, this erosion of security for people who had been here legally and beginning to question the citizenship status of people who have already been naturalized, um, but this is happening out of the public eye, that this should be frightening to everyone that the uh, legal status suddenly becomes very, very insecure and vulnerable to these targeted kinds of attacks but it's happening behind this idea that there is some kind of clear boundary between who's here legally and who's here illegally. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sad to me that the one of the ways we 
check, uh, I guess, fascism, if you can call it that, or check these uh, uh, forms of uh, human abuse, is to try to limit our own government's access to technology. In other words, that, oh, well, our government can't be trusted with this stuff, so let's get companies to stop making it for them. Do you know what? I, do, do you see why that's such a troubling? Was it such a troubling concept for people living in a supposedly free society? No, it's incredibly terrifying. I think the the issue though with the technology that we also just have to recognize is that although you know tech companies and and the private sector and innovation, the the one truth is that they do move much faster than the government. And so what that means is not only that the government, you know, it's not that the government can't produce its own technology, but what it does mean is that the government can't produce protections for the technology that is being created. That's a great point. We have all of this technology that's moving ahead, you know, five steps, you know, faster than, than anything we can imagine. Yet we're still, you know, figuring out how to protect people's fundamental human rights based off of documents from, from many hundreds of years ago that couldn't even imagine this type of evidence being used against people. And so, you know, that really is also part of the, the clink because Honestly, I don't care if a prison is built by the government or built by a private corporation. A cage is a cage. State control is state control, whether they get it through private companies or whether they make it themselves. What really is nefarious is the fact that people's rights are being violated and that people's freedom is being challenged by an authoritarian government that doesn't care about them. Right. So that what are the protections against authoritarianism, which is, you know, the Bill of Rights and our privacy laws and surveillance laws, whatever we have, that those things need to be they do need to be updated as the means of of surveillance change, as the the ways in which government can keep files and document things that they change. I mean, we we had some changes in the 1950s through the McCarthy era, and we haven't really had an update an update since. So we do end up in this weird place where the only way to uh, uh, the only way to give government time to legislate around these technologies is to is to slow down their implementation or application in the field by people who may not even really understand the law well enough um, to to live by its spirit, much less uh, its letter. Yeah, and what we have seen from ICE is not only that they don't know the law, it's a blatant disregard for the law. I mean, the, the, the few protections that exist, you know, they, yeah, trample right over. I know that from personal experience, as you were saying, from my arrest in Arizona, but I think also just seeing what they've been doing across the country sends chills down anybody's spine. Like, it just really is terrifying what they're doing, the tricks that they use. They're going into people's homes. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, was talking. I was talking to some folks from Laredo, Texas, and hearing what they've had to go through in a town run by Border Patrol, where agents are literally, you know, serial killers and tracking down people, committing violence against women, going into people's homes without a warrant. I mean, the level of constant terror that people live in is really, yeah, it's really horrible. And, and, and knowing that this is happening with even more and more technology just kind of makes it makes everyone kind of have to think twice about it. Yeah, you know, I started learning about these things because I was working in Mexico and was worried about, you know, mining corporations going after us as organizers. But uh, to be honest, uh, I don't trust, you know, ICE any more than I trust those those mining corporations. Right. And and people have to understand, I think, no, no matter what their understanding of immigration or or asylum laws, you know, that I mean as my grandmother always used to, you know, recite that that poem to me. You know, first they came, <laughs> first they came for the immigrants, and I didn't say anything because I'm not an immigrant. Is to understand that the immigrants really are the canaries in the coal mine here. That the the what what can be done to immigrants because they're being framed as less than human right now will end up being done um, to everybody. That this is the this is the system to which we are supposed to be submitting. Yes, 100%. You know, the, the, I'm reminded, and I've mentioned it on this show a few times, I'm reminded of this panel I was on at, at IBM Watson when they were talking about AI and how great it is. And I asked them about what sorts of ethical limits are they going to put around the implementation of, of Watson and AI. And the guy from Watson said, well, that's really not our job. That's going to be up to the client. 
to decide, you know, uh, what how, what they think is ethical and what how they're going to uh, uh, and 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 be limited by the law. And I'm like, I said, well, you're IBM. How well did that work out for you in the punch card era? You know, referring obviously to the fact that they were they made the punch card systems for the Nazis to keep track of uh, of the Jews and and uh, orchestrate the uh, mass incineration of people in the death camps. That there, it really. In theory, the the company making the technology really at this point, when technology is moving this quickly, they do need to have the the uh, the, the historians, the anthropologists, the ethicists in house looking at the potential impacts of different applications. Yet, almost none of these companies um, think that way. The closest they have to that is public relations. Actually, I have a question about this, too, because one of the things I was struck by in looking at the Mihente report was that it's um, it's not as if there's a singular relationship between one company and one client, but you actually have many different clients in terms of government and private agencies feeding information into this network and it wasn't clear to me actually what limits there were um, if any in terms of sharing information between like a local municipality uploading uh, addresses from their local school tax information or license plate information and whether that the client might be just like a local municipality who doesn't have a clear sense of how that information might get used and uh, that it becomes a very dangerous situation that there isn't one client who's monitoring how things are being used, but this network becomes much bigger than any one of the, the parts feeding into it. And we're definitely already seeing that. I mean, we've had folks in, in California have already been pushing some of their cities to cancel contracts, for example, with Vigilant Solutions, a license plate reader company, because precisely they have contracts with ICE. And so all of this information that, for example, local cities are like, well, we're just going to make sure we get speeding tickets. Well, those, those same machines are actually fueling the information into this network to be able to, to provide that information to ICE. So it, it is such a wide network that it is all, yeah, connected in that way and where it's hard to make that, that intervention. Yeah, and then, I mean, and, and if you want to play the, the 360 degrees game, now, you know, Amazon is making content. <laughs> so not only are they creating the infrastructure, but... I mean, and not to say that they're this that they're this clever, but they're creating the television shows that people are going to be watching. So eventually, it gets to the place where you know where they are the news channel, they are the entertainment channel. So they they become the source of information about the world in which they're actually operating. Also, we we move into a situation where the technology drives the law and the agenda. You know, if the technology is moving the fastest and the law is trying to catch up, if it even is, um, the technology ends up uh, providing capabilities that then uh, define process or the lack of due process in any of this. You know, if they know your history or or as as they're, they're going to be saying soon, that they know your um, the likelihood of your future actions, you know, we'll start to see you know, deportation and, and prosecution based on algorithmic prediction of likely outcomes. We're already seeing it. And I think that part of part of the danger is that people really sort of have come to think of tech and data as being neutral or that that's going to help democracy, that it's going to come with the promise of freedom because it's going to be based on the numbers or, or what we have. But there's so much evidence that what predictive policing does is actually just reinforce the bias that we know exists in real life and the structural disadvantages that we know exist in real life. Um, and so we see that, again, folks that are the most vulnerable, that are already the most criminalized, that already have life the hardest, are the ones that are most attacked by these types of algorithms because mysteriously these algorithms find out that they are the most dangerous or the most at risk or are actually thinking that people just because of their immigration status are flight risks and deciding to keep them locked up because of that. 
And so there's all of this stuff that when we look at, at evidence, when we look at studies, we see is not true. But the biggest thing that we have to kind of analyze is that we can't even challenge these algorithms. They're completely secret to us. Right. I mean, and the and and the issue here for 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 us is, I mean, immigration law aside, no matter what people who are listening think of of nation and boundary and citizenship, that we're we're moving into a world where we're looking at human beings through the eyes of an Amazon algorithm or through the eyes of an of an Amazon server rather than through the eyes of another human being. And how can we possibly meet out uh, any kind of human-based justice, any kind of, uh, of, of compassionate justice on people if we're not looking at them, if we're not seeing them? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? If it's the computer that's witnessing, that's, that's gauging the humanity rather than other humans, then... You know, what could be more dehumanizing than that? It's incredibly dehumanizing. And, you know, I, I think it's just, I, I do hope that folks can kind of remember also that even when you do have humans in some of these positions, it's already so difficult because bias is so deep. I mean, most judges, if you go, for example, to rural Georgia and look at their approval rates for asylum versus courts in San Francisco or New York, the percentages are so different. And it is because of the human bias, too, there. I think what we just see is an intensification of the process with these technologies that don't even give people a chance to have a conversation. What can can listeners do uh, to, to learn? I mean, they can go to migente.net. Um, you can you can uh, contribute there. Um, you can go to uh, ice.tech.blog to learn about Amazon's uh, HQ2 deal and and how ICE is involved in that. But, you know, the, the, the emails I get all day from people are, how do I actually participate? And they want to join, you know, usually they want to join some team human-y thing. But um, rather than, than them coming to me for me to point them to you, how can people get directly involved in, in these issues, either issues of moderating or intervening on the the application of of very powerful technologies on uh on on immigration and and human tracking and uh, the issues of, immig of immigration immigration themselves you know I, I think it's it's so great that folks have the 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 desire the urge to be helpful to participate to to yes be part of these fights i think one and foremost is like all of these fights are local and there is, sometimes I feel like we look for, well, how do I plug in? How do I participate in the national fight about this? It all comes down to how are you participating in your own community? So if you're concerned about Amazon and the technology and you live in New York, come out for the fight. Join people who are actually doing rallies, who are going to, to the state capitol, who are going to their council meetings, who are do, organizing protests and rallies and petitions to be able to push back. Because it is actually these individual site fights that are really have broader implications for how Amazon is seen and how we can start to chip away at their power. So I do just, anyone who's in New York, please be part of this campaign, please be part of this fight to be able to ensure that they don't come. I think when we're thinking about the national fight, you know, folks go to mihinta.net backslash no tech for ice. They can download our report. They can sign our petition against Amazon. They can make a donation. Um, but also, you know, Take it up in, in terms of how you want to do it. Just create a study group and read through the report. Have different people have different conversations. Reach out to, to be able to, to you know, again, bring this to your city council, to bring this to your local elected officials and talk about if you have a sanctuary city, how do we expand sanctuary to include some of these protections? If you don't have a sanctuary city, how do you ensure that you start to get your local government to not collaborate or not collude with immigration and customs enforcement in destroying local immigrant communities? So I think there's a lot of things that people can do to kind of plug in. And I would say if, if you have member, uh, folks who are listening who are Latinx and who are thinking about how do I participate in a broader organization that, you know, we're a political home for for Latinx folks that believe in, in our values, that are pro-Black, that are pro-women, pro-LGBT, pro-trans. Um, so if you believe in those principles, sign up as a member. 
from a local perspective here in Queens too, there's been um, just a really beautiful kind of collaboration between anti-gentrification groups, um, immigrant rights groups, uh, groups that are working out of um, NYCHA public, ho public housing projects and um, CUNY students and faculty using actually social media to organize, to um, come up with shared objectives, to make sure people get to different locations um, at the right time, sharing signage and um, stickers to put on products inside Whole Foods. There's been a great kind of humanizing of the technology to organize across multiple fronts. So there's, um, if you just go onto Twitter or Facebook and look, there's many ways to get involved locally. I'll also add there's organizations like the New Sanctuary Group in terms of thinking about how to add kind of a human component uh, to, to these issues that organizes accompaniments where you can go and accompany um, people who need just someone to go support them at court dates or to doctor's visits to just be there to show some support. And it's really quite eye-opening to see what happens at these places that we hear about, but don't often go. But that's a way, if you have a spare afternoon, that you can provide some human support. And just because I would be amiss to not shout out to two local organizations in New York that are doing really amazing work. One is Drummed, as he's rising up and moving that has been fighting against gentrification, against deportations, against criminalization, and also the Immigrant Defense Project that has been kind of creating some of the most innovative defense strategies, both in terms of campaigns and individual cases for folks that are touched by both the criminal justice and the immigration systems. Well, terrific. I mean, and the, the thing is, it's actually, you're offering a gift in the sense of, oh, there are ways to be to be involved. There are ways to make a difference, that this is a... Uh, uh, you know, this is a, a challenge that's just ripe, uh, ripe for addressing pretty much anywhere, you know, anywhere you live, you can, uh, you can plug in and, and make a, an actual difference engaging with other people. So, you know, thanks so much, uh, both of you for what you do and for just creating these, uh, these opportunities and openings for, uh, for people to uh, experience themselves as, as part of the team doing, uh, doing good work. We need as many hands on deck, so it really is. If it, if it's now, if it's not now, then when? Right. So hope folks that really do kind of rise up and, and join. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Team Human. Our guests today were immigration activists Jacinta Gonzalez and Amy Herzog. You can find out more about them and these important issues at mihente.net. Team Human is supported entirely by listeners. You can support the show by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. My monologues all get adapted and then posted as essays on Medium, where you can also find all of our episodes. Team Human is produced and engineered by Stephen Bartolome. Our associate producer is Josh Chaptelin, and our virtual futurist is Luke Robert Mason. Michael Bass is our community director. You've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peace. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.